listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the CIPD podcast series. In this month's podcast, we'll be answering your questions on employment law. Now, we have had a lot of questions, so thanks very much to everyone who sent one in. We're joined today by two legal experts, Ian Smith, who's a barrister and Clifford Chance Professor of Employment Law at the Norwich Law School, University of East Anglia, and Dominic Regan, a solicitor and trainer. They'll be trying to get through as many questions as possible in the time we have. So, Ian, Dominic, thanks very much for joining us. We're going to kick off with some legal questions arising from the current economic situation and its impact on employers. Ian, our first question comes from William Sutherland. If an employee has been required to go from a five-day week uh, to a four-day week, is he or she entitled to a redundancy payment on the one-day a week his or her services are no longer required? No, unfortunately. And this is a well-known bear trap for employees going on to short-time working. Uh, the problem is that if they are made redundant after a certain period of time, whilst on the reduced hours, the statutory redundancy payment is based on the, that terminal salary. In fact, the only way you can even average it is over the 12 weeks before the final date of employment. Now, the only way around this isn't under the statute. If an employee is faced with this, uh, what they might want to try and do, and certainly solicitors would tend to advise this, is to try to get the employer to agree by contract that if they are later made redundant, then by contract the employer will give them the amount they would have had had they still been on the full amount. But that, I'm afraid, is the only way around it. Statutorily, there isn't one. And because the other basic point is that you have one contract of employment and either you have the job or you don't have the job, you're redundant or you're not redundant. The concept of being redundant for for one day a week is is a no-no. Now our next question comes from Angela Crawley. How much information about second jobs is an employer entitled to receive? If, for example, there is a workplace accident, so the employee's had an accident due to tarnish because they've got a second job, um, is the employer absolved from blame because the employer's tried to get information to ascertain the total working hours but has been met with refusal? So, Dominic, your thoughts on that? Right. Uh, well, the first, again, most fundamental point in all of that is that just because people have accidents doesn't mean that the employer is to blame. And the issue of, of whether the hours had anything to do with the accident is, of course, another matter entirely. Coming to mainstream employment law, um, employers are entitled to ask questions, and, and indeed the, the employer has a duty to look after the health and safety of their employees. Um, if an employee uh, refuses to give information, then that patently is something that's going to count against the employee. But it, it would not be an answer to a claim. If, if an employer uh, were, were to cause uh, an accident in the workplace, then it's no answer to say that the person uh, was doing long hours or had failed or refused to divulge information. So I think there are a number of strands to to that question. Yes, I I agree with that. There would have to be the causation link um, to the long hours. But even if there was, again, the employer's only obligation to act reasonably. Now, it's an interesting point because... It is up to an employer to find out, or at least to try to, in the words of the question, find out what the true position is. Obviously, the employer has got a lie in response or a brick wall, then the employer has done all that is reasonable. And in fact, it would almost be the same, I think, under working time. Say the, um, this is one of the problems, because they're only supposed to work 48 hours unless opted out in all employments. Now, this is a well-known problem. Um, but on the other hand... If, for example, the employee was keeping that employment quiet, the second employment, all under the working time regulations you have to do is to take reasonable steps to make sure that they do combine 
uh, actually go with the 48 hours. So again, I think probably the same sort of point would arise. But just to be clear, the employee (coughs) is under no legal obligation to reveal a second or third job? Uh, Employees have no duty as such to reveal anything. Where where it could get interesting is if if it puts them in direct conflict with with another job, but that that, that is a very, very, very elaborate area of law. But the basic point is that if you don't ask questions, you're not entitled to information. And employers have to take all reasonable steps? They do. If the employer wants to know something, the employer should ask the question specifically, are you doing uh, Are you doing other work? And of course, in many contracts of employment, particularly for senior individuals, there'll be a clause saying you will not take on other work without our prior written consent, because that's the way that the employer can, can police this and make it, because the last thing you want to do is be paying somebody a vast sum of money and then them coming staggering into work every morning shattered because they've got another two or three jobs. But of course, now this has gone lower down the scale, hasn't it, with ordinary people having reduced hours and, and taking extra work to make up the difference. It has gone, it has gone down, lower down the scale, and it is a concern. And in fact, lower down the scale, um, it, it's less of an issue in that, you know, if people are doing sort of, you know, humble, menial work, uh, many employers will say, well, that, that's what they want to do. Because you've got somebody who's highly, play, highly paid in a position of real importance, you would not want them being distracted by outside activity. I mean, one thing the employer could say if, if it was a problem, and employees were getting a bit shirty about answering questions like that, and it's not too far from the truth, but one thing the employer could say is, I have an obligation under the working time regulations to make sure your total work is within hours. I therefore have that obligation, and therefore you should, you should actually reply. Yes. Or indeed, the individual signs the, the opt-out, which they're entitled to do, and if they sign the opt-out, then they can work as many hours as they want to work. End of story. Now, we've had an email from an employer who's about to go through a big restructure. Many of the employees affected by the restructure are used to earning overtime on a regular basis, in some cases over many years. Now, the new arrangements will increase hourly pay, but will also significantly reduce the need for overtime. The employer tells us he will be consulting on the changes, and if he proceeds, will give three months' notice of what they'll be but is keen to know whether the regular nature of the overtime means it has become custom and practice, and therefore if he's obliged to pay compensation or perhaps take into account the regular and enduring nature of the overtime payments in in any other way. Ian? Well, the starting point is that the employee can always try this argument. Uh, Tends to cop up perhaps more if they are collectively organised, because obviously trade unions quite rightly have a strong view of custom and practice. It's difficult It tends to crop up where it's successful, not in the area of things like overtime, but in areas such as um, where you get discretionary payments on severance and redundancy, which have been made many times. And this time the employer says, sorry, chum, no money in the pot. Now, sometimes it works there. It's a very complex law. It's very difficult indeed. Overtime... I think my own view would be, would be very difficult indeed. The great tradition of overtime in this country is it is voluntary. On both sides, it is very rarely ever defined. And I think it would take a hell of a lot of custom and practice to overturn that. Yes, because overtime traditionally has been as and when required, and that's the very point. It is flexible. It is not a contractual right. So even though they've done it for a long time, just because people do things a long time does not in itself render it a contractual entitlement. Uh, and, and indeed, the fact that the employer is consulting and uh, presumably has a good business base for making the decision I think puts the employer in an even better position to say, well, this is how it's going to be. I mean, as you say, if it doesn't apply to overtime, it may apply to other issues. Is there some sort of test for custom and practice? No, <laughs> that's the problem. Well, well, there are, but people don't agree on it. Um, <laughs> no. clients, yeah. it it's got to be uh, notorious, general and certain. Um, 
it was much more common in the days before written contracts when basically had nothing but custom and practice. Again, much more common in smokestack industries, heavily unionised, everyone knew what was done, and God help you if you didn't do that. These days, with more written contracts, more flexible working, it's much more difficult to prove. We have a similar question on pay increments uh, in the public sector. Um, Employees often received an incremental pay increase each year. Does the fact they come to expect such an increase confer any rights on them, and if they then don't receive an automatic increase in a subsequent year. Same sort of territory, isn't it? It's very much similar, yeah. Um, there is the old saying, uh, blessed are those who expect as little, for they shall surely receive it. Uh, the expectation is an interesting one, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a battle brush at the moment there. We're all laughing um, a wry laugh. <laughs> um, no, it, it's a difficult... Again, it can be argued... But unless the employer said something really quite stupid in the past, which is always possible, of course, or given indications, very strong indications this will happen, uh, given representations that could be sued upon, again, if it's clear that it is discretionary and that you will not, even if it says you will normally go up, you know, normally is an interesting word, um, that way, again, I think a difficult one for the employee to make stick. Absolutely. Um, the, the whole of the law now on, on discretion is that the employer should exercise discretion in, in a rational manner, not in an, an arbitrary manner. Um, a very good reason for saying, look, you know, we're not going to give people pay rises this year is because there's no money around. And I, I, courts are not there. Tribunals are not there. They are not there to start working out what people's salaries should be. The only way uh, that the, the courts can delve into this area is if they can be persuaded there is a breach of contract. So if there's no contractual right to a pay rise, it therefore follows that the courts cannot move in and say, well, we think we should give this person an extra five or ten pounds a week. So contract apart, um, if the employer has a discretion and they're exercising it on good grounds, then the matter is beyond doubt. Yes, people are used to pay rises, but it is not a God-given right, subject, of course, to what the contract actually says. Nikki Lincoln has a question about a recent House of Lords ruling. What was the ruling on the recent case relating to the accrual of holiday leave whilst on sick leave? And what do you think the implications of this ruling are? What a good question. Mm. <laughs> um, <we've> <laughs> recently, <laughs> it's a very interesting one. This It's the Ainsworth Stroke Stringer litigation. Now, we've just had the House of Lords decision as it came back from the European Court. And the House of Lords decision is on a tiny point and not on most of it. And so there is, in fact, an awful lot to be decided yet. The European Court basically said that um, you can accrue holiday leave uh, whilst on sick sick leave. Now, the question of whether you can actually take it during sick leave is, again, a difficult one, but it's not actually directly um, approached in the the European Court judgment. What the European Court judgment is about, and certainly the House of Lords judgment, is where the guys on sick leave, say for the whole of of a year, a holiday year, then into the next year, and then is dismissed. Now, those are the facts of the case. Now, what they were really talking about is whether sick pay goes forwards. Not the holiday itself, it's the sick pay going forwards. And the House of Lords, picking up the ECJ, have just held that they can claim the, held, the taken forwards pay into the next year. Now, that's principally what it means. There's all sorts of other issues about it, but that's principally what it means. Now, you then ask the question... Does that mean, therefore, that you can simply not pay them while they're on holiday, uh, in sick leave? Because obviously they may run out of sick pay. Now, I still think it's possible for the employer to dig heels and say, no, you can't take it. The old, old assumption used to be that if then they ran out of the holiday year, they lost it. 
But now, it's, we're being told, you can actually carry it forwards. What that may mean, of course, is a very interesting set of discussions when you finally sack the bloke. Because <laughs> he's been on sick for a long time, so exactly how much? So, in fact, the practical advice might really be to allow it. Pay it at the time, because you're going to have to pay it later. Now, there is a real problem with legislation on this. English law, the working time regulations, say you can't carry forwards from one year to the next. That now appears to be illegal, and the government are almost certainly going to have to remove that. On the other hand, there is a problem that both English law and European law say you can't buy it out. And therefore you get this awful problem, what if they don't take it, but then ask for the money the following year, and no one knows the answer to that. It's simply open. We're still left completely. The House of Lords' judgment uh, leaves far more unanswered questions yeah. than, than before. So yes. the advice to employers is? To be perfectly honest, pay just pay it. Pay, pay as you pay go. It. You're going to have to yeah. pay it later anyway. And, and just, just avoid, uh, avoid the disputes later on. Save yourself the legal fees. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Now, we have had quite a few questions in about the new ACAS code on disciplinary and grievance procedures. As people will probably remember, the government's rather ill-fated statutory dispute procedures were repealed in April of this year, and the new code replaced them. Now, obviously, we don't have time to cover all the questions we've had, but let's just do a few tasters. One of our listeners wants to know how the new code has actually changed things, and specifically how it affects redundancy and dismissal procedures. What do you think, Dominic? Right. Well, the, the, the major thing, is, as your, your question anticipates, is the abolition of the, the ghastly complexity of the old statutory and grievance procedures. What we now have um, are guidelines um, which tribunals must have regard to, but that they have that f- sort of inherent flexibility about them. And a failure to follow that would not in itself, I think, render any sort of dismissal unfair. But of course, tribunals are still entitled to look at what they employed did. And I, I think really we've gone back uh, to, to good old-fashioned reasonableness. And what, what the, and, and they're very shortly stated, what the new guiding principle says, you, know, you, you act promptly, you give people the opportunity to explain themselves, you allow them representation, and it's just good old-fashioned common sense. And I think that's back where we are, Ian, would you agree? Yes, I, I, I agree. And also, of course, although the uh, supplementary guidance technically speaking isn't a, code, isn't a code of practice, it is very important. Don't underestimate it. It often goes along with the code of practice and is tantamount to one. One specific point, however, about your question. You mentioned redundancy. Now, for the very first time ever, the Code of Practice states it does not apply to a redundancy dismissal. Uh, neither does it apply, by the way, to a termination of a fixed-term contract. Now, the way that the head of ACAS, uh, Ed Sweeney, has explained the exclusion of redundancy is that the code is primarily about misconduct and other areas such as ill health and so on. Basically speaking, there's enough law on redundancy anyway. It's all there in the case law and did not need to be. So for heaven's sake, don't start thinking that they've abolished the requirement of fair-handling redundancy. Quite the opposite, but it's not in the code. And uh, one point uh, buried in, in, in the forward and, and not mentioned in, in the substance um, of the, the new guidance uh, is the, the, the reference to mediation, um, which I think ACAS are very excited about, and we've heard about that at the uh, CIPD conference here this morning. Um, the whole idea that people should be trying to mediate their way out of problems, if possibly they can, it's not been built into the, uh, the code itself, uh, because I think concerns that, that people, lawyers might try and use it and steamroller uh, opponents and saying you must mediate 
but it, it is certainly something that I think we're going to hear about an awful lot more about in employment dispute resolution. And, and Gibbons, who of course is the architect of the new rules, um, himself a, a mediator and very keen on, on trying to avoid going to tribunal hearings and mediation, uh, a way of trying to uh, avoid that outcome. Now, it's interesting you bring up mediation because we've had a question about that. Can I ask you about larger organisations in this context? Would they be expected to use mediation more widely because they have greater resources? Because the code also stated that internal mediators can be used, but you know, who are these people? Is there anything covering them? Do they need to be accredited, check for consistency, neutrality? Right. Okay. Um, first of all, right, there is no special requirement. There's no magic about being a mediator. There, there, there is as yet no sort of um, uh, overriding requirement to have a particular qualification. There are many entities that provide uh, mediation training. Um, obviously, the mediator would need to be seen to be impartial. And I think answering the question directly, um, there's, there's no special rule about large organisations. No, it may well be in practice that large organisations have the, the assets, the wherewithal, the recourse to mediate. Mediators, but there's no special rule that says that if you are a large entity that you've got to provide mediation. Um, I suppose the converse of that is smaller employers might not be familiar with the concept and therefore would, would shy uh, away from mediation. But there's no special rule that says if you're of a particular size, you shall have mediation uh, into the worked into the process. Yes, Dominic mentioned the uh, point that the, it's only in the introduction to the code it's mentioned. Now, apparently, as I understand it, that was quite deliberate because neither side, the trade unions or the, um, the employers' organisations, wanted to go down the route of the ordinary civil courts where it's sometimes the case that if you do fail to mediate, you can have a cost sanction. And they were very, very worried about that. They wanted that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, in fact, the, the code is remarkably bland about mediation, although it is really quite important. And so on that basis, again, I, I, I would agree that uh, um, even a large organisation wouldn't be penalised no. for not doing it. On the other hand, a large organisation may have more to gain by it and also be able to use internal mediation more, uh, which would possibly keep the costs down quite considerably. It's interesting the code hasn't been tougher on that, because as you say, you know, it's very central to the whole process, mm-hmm. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, The How can I put this tactfully? The code had to be produced fairly quickly, um, and there was a large element of negotiation about it. I'll say no more than that. Yeah. Do you both think that the code will actually make much difference to the number of employment tribunal claims that we see? My, my take, the, the claims are always going to be there. The, the, the code is, is, is it may, may be highly instrumental in determining the outcome of a tribunal application. I don't think it's going to stop claims being, being pursued and all the evidence is that tribunal claims in, in our current circumstances are rising dramatically. Um, and, and, and even you mentioned quite rightly mediation, um, that is still something that uh, it's, everybody talks about it, but it's not really enshrined in the system yet. Um, apart from ACAS, of course, which is, is the ultimate mediator. ACAS has always been there to try and help people sort out their disputes. But um, I, I certainly don't see that it's going to stop claims. Um, what it is going to stop is the ghastly legal argument that we've had over the last five years in terms of procedural matters and who said what to whom and did a letter count as a grievance. All that nonsense, thankfully, is behind us. Amen to that. Now, moving on to an international issue, uh, we had an interesting question about the application of law across borders. You're both looking nervous at this point. <laughs> we did with the Isle of Man law of uh, employment at about an hour ago. We are international. Yeah. OK, we'll try this one then. If a UK organisation hires a Dutch person living and working in the Netherlands, do they need to comply with UK employment laws with respect to leave entitlements and national insurance and so on? Or does the organisation need to comply with the laws in the Netherlands and or have a business operating there to pay taxes and so on? 
Um, this sounds remarkably like a university uh, law exam it question. It does, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> an, an area called conflict of laws, which is like four-dimensional chess. The simple answer, I'm afraid to that, you've got to see a lawyer. Uh, but it's not at all clear which system of law applies. There's even a difference between statutory law and contract law, and they're governed by different rules. Now, my gut feeling from just the little bit that you've told us there is that almost certainly we're subject to Dutch rules. Yes. Um, but there could be an issue as to where the contract is. There could be an issue of what is the proper law of the contract. There could be an issue as to whether the contract actually governs what's called forum, which is where uh, proceedings have to be brought. It is a phenomenally difficult area, even within the EU, uh, in fact, EU rules don't particularly help in this area. And even worse, further afield, presumably. Oh, yes, yeah. And the, the leading textbook is so thick that if you jumped off it, you'd die. Absolutely, absolutely right. As I say, I, I, I shall um, copy down your question for use at the university and law school. I think. <laughs> one, one thing I, I, I would um, add, actually, is uh, that when we put, do questions like that using Holland, we always use one particular name for the Dutch employee in question, which is, which is Hertz van Rental. <laughs> Let's move on to default retirement age. This is going to be a very vexed question, I suspect. We've been asked if an employee requests to work beyond their default retirement age of 65 for, say, a further five years and the organisation agrees, can the organisation then change their mind and, ch- and break the agreement a year later? There's no answer to that in the regulations. The, the argument to be very, very wary about doing that is that you have, in fact, used the, the regulations, the, um, the form of, of a dismissal called retirement, once, and you got an answer out of it. Now, the employee wouldn't have much difficulty, I think, answer, uh, arguing that, therefore, until that was finished, any dismissal would not be for retirement. No, no. Now, I, I can't point a chapter and verse on that. It doesn't say so, actually, in the regulations. But funnily enough, I did, I did talk about this question with a, a lawyer friend of mine, asking if she'd come across this. And funnily enough, she hadn't. But her view is the same as mine. Be careful. Now, having said that, the fact that you have, I suspect, to your now regret, agreed five years, because most people will not do that at all. They will want one year at a time. Yeah. But the fact you've done it does not mean you can't get rid of them within that five years by using the, the other heads of fair dismissal. But I, I'm pretty wary as to whether you'll be allowed to use the retirement head. Yeah. So if you just simply decide you don't want them anymore, that's too bad. It is rather. And of course, it opens up a whole separate argument about if, you, if they say, right, you're going to have five years, have they got, in effect, a contractual mm. right to a five-year agreement? And if they've got a five years, they've got the right to do the five years, and, and, and whether because you know what their age was when they were entered into it. So I think, therefore, that there's a lot more to That is incredibly dangerous. And, and I mean, frankly, the best advice for employers um, with, the, with the statutory scheme as it is, is that if, if they decide that age 65 will call it a day, there is nothing the employee can do about it, as long as the employer procedurally gets it right. So they, the, the individual can say, I want to stay on. The employer can say, right, I've thought about it. You can't. Individual has the right to appeal. Um, the employer has the right to say, I'm turning down your appeal. And that is the end of the matter. If to say to somebody, OK, you can stay for five more years, I think they're going to start saying, I've got the right to five years work. And if you terminate me prematurely, I've got the right to damages for breach, substantial damages. Even in the legislation, there's a further point that I think I might say, and they could even try and argue you have set a new normal retirement age. Yes. In which case, there are separate rules on that as well. 
Yes. If you wanted to, ret- to retire them before that. So I, I think it's real danger territory. So what should employers do if they're looking at an employee in this situation and thinking, well, we might actually want them for another year or two. We don't want to lose them right now. But we don't want to lock oursells in. They, Annual well, contract. Right. They could do a one-year agreement and six months into that, they could say, look, we're not going to renew and we look then to terminate at the end of that one-year period. But it, it is folly because no one can predict what's going to happen five years ahead. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Now, this is what is the legal status of terms and conditions of employment as specified by an employee handbook. So, essentially, are they contractual, even if accompanied by a statement to the effect that the company considers them non-contractual? Okay. The company handbook is a wonderful thing until you fall out over it. Um, It's strongly suggested by ACAS, always has been in flavour of the month for many, many months, in fact. But... There is this one problem, which bits are contractual, which bits aren't. Bits to do with I know, sick pay, sometimes people put in, probably fairly clearly contractual. The bits about where the loos are probably aren't. So, you know, it's a huge um, uh, rag bag. Now, I know what this person means by saying the employer will try to say it's non-contractual. The problem is that parts can be what is called incorporated from the handbook into the individual contracts of employment. Now... If the employer says, this is not contractual, and again, I'd be very wary about simply one clause at the end saying none of this is contractual, that just looks silly. Um, But if the employer wants to try and keep something contractual, okay, that's where you start, if they've done it right. But there are arguments they haven't done it right. And one of the leading authorities, the leading case on, in fact, about the only case on company handbooks, it was a case of whether there's an entitlement to a a non-statutory extra severance payment, which was mentioned in the company handbook. Employer, of course, says, oh, no, it's all discretion, and on this occasion there's no money, you're not having it. Then, uh, I think counsel for um, the employee asked two rather interesting questions. First question, how did you refer to this? Oh, as an entitlement. And the second question, where did you put it? Oh, we put it under the chapter, employee rights. And the court had very little difficulty in saying, to hell with what you've called it, that's contractual. So you must be careful. Um, and discretion is difficult these days. It's got to be discretion in reality, not just what you've put. And so I'm afraid it's a question, This is uh, where the lawyers tend to get round, round it, it doesn't help very much, it gives you a flavour. What they talk about, it's the same problem from collective agreements, is the clause in question apt for incorporation? And what they will tend to do is to look at what the parties are intending. Um, and if basically you can show really it was meant to be intentional, it was in there, it's the sort of thing that's normally contractual, and you just put a, some half-cut clause at the end saying, by the way, you can't write any of this stuff, it would look very bad. Yes. As ever, the, the, the point in employment law is that whatever people say does not necessarily count, and merely to say this is not contractual, a court or tribunal can step back and say, well, actually... It is. So the, the, the label put upon things, as, uh, as we always say in employment law, is not going to be conclusive. And if a, a court or tribunal looks at it and says, well, that's fundamental to the working of this, it must be contractual. The fact that you've got great big, you know, four-inch letters saying this is not contractual, not worth the paper it's written on. OK, now, finally, um, can I just ask you both what you think is going to be really big on the employment law front in the coming year? What is going to hit the headlines? One that I think is interesting because it has a very strong political element to it under the present government, i.e. before the next election, whatever may or may not happen then, is family-friendly policies. We know the equality bill's coming, that's all there. But what we don't know is what the government are going to do about more family-friendly. The original idea was that 2010 
was going to see the increase of statutory maternity pay up to a full year, effectively perfecting the system. And that is why, although the government enacted a right for additional paternity leave and pay, where the man will be able to take over some of the woman's uh, rights if she comes back early, it hasn't been brought into force. It was going to be brought into force at the same time as statutory maternity pay. Now, the assumption tended to be that new labour was so wedded to this sort of area, it would go ahead. And the usual new labour mantra is very simple, that family-friendly are an opportunity for business and impose no burdens. That, however, was then shot down a few weeks ago by the business secretary, Lord Mandelson of Everything and Everywhere, who came out suddenly to say that from the point of view of the business department, the government, from whom he appears to be speaking at the time... Uh, not would, for the first time. Not for the first time, yes. I mean, have you ever noticed what his initials are? PM. But apart from that, um, he, he came out with this, this, this uh, government, apparently, uh, initiative saying that in times of recession, further family-friendly reforms were put on hold because he did not want to put burdens on business. He was then apparently taken behind a screen in Downing Street by two female cabinet ministers and given a good kicking. Mm. Uh, and they then said he didn't really mean it. But of course, that was before the cabinet reshuffle when he seemed to become rather powerful. So I think one fascinating point is going to be, are we going to see more family-friendly? doesn't sound or like it on, from what you're yeah, saying. Or is on hold because of the recession. Yeah. Mm. And I think in the next year, I think we are going back to a topic we touched on earlier, I think we're going to see a big, big push for mediation and um, mediators coming in, trying to sort things out. Um, and indeed, in the courts, there's a, a parallel movement at the moment about whether mediation should be made compulsory. And I, without suggesting that will happen in the tribunal, I think we're going to see an awful lot more emphasis on mediation and, and trying to avoid matters going to the tribunal, which is very expensive for all concerned. OK. Thank you both very much indeed for answering all those questions. Thanks. If we haven't managed to answer your questions, please visit the Employment Law area of the CIPD website where you'll find plenty more information on employment legislation and indeed forthcoming changes to employment law. Employment law is, of course, always a popular subject at our annual conference and exhibition, and that moves to Manchester this year. You can find advanced information on the conference at cipd.co.uk forward slash ACE, that's A-C-E. Now, next month, we're going to be joined by a panel of experts to take a closer look at the highly topical area of executive remuneration. Join us then. Goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.